0: well amen it is uh such a privilege to be able to open the word of god with you and let it speak to us and that's uh our intention this evening If you'll take your bibles and turn with me to philippians the book of philippians chapter (laughs) 2 i thought since we did philippians 1 the last time i was here might as well do philippians 2 this time (laughs) maybe we'll get to philippians 3 but um God willing, I won't have to come too many more times because, of course, we're praying for you. You're on our prayer list at our church, and we're uh, we're definitely hoping that uh, you know, we're we're trusting and knowing uh, that the Lord uh, will reveal His will to you and guide you in all this and big decisions. And uh, we know that the Lord will will um, will be a part of all of those. Philippians chapter two. We're dealing here. Um, you know, of course, that this is a letter written by Paul to the church in Philippi. He wrote it while he was sitting in a prison cell in Rome. And he, sitting in the prison cell in Rome, speaks over and over about how happy he is, how joyful he is, how he thanks God every time he remembers the church in Philippi. This was a good church. As a matter of fact, he didn't have to say any of the things he said to the Corinthians. He didn't have to say... Get it in line, get it in order, fix this in your doctrine, fix that, you know, stop being carnal, stop turning to sin. None of those things that he had to bring up to the Philippians. The Philippians doctrinally were sound. They were passionate about the word of, uh, about the work of God. Uh, Paul says that they labored together with him, that they were suffering the same things that he suffers, that they were also being put in prison for the cause of Christ. So. What we know about the church in Philippi is is just very, very good. But there was apparently one problem. One problem. We see it in, in chapter 4. We'll see it again in chapter 2 in just a minute, but just by way of of introduction here. In chapter 4, he makes a note in verse 2, I beseech Eodius and Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord and i entreat thee also true yoke fellow help those women which labored with me in the gospel he said these are these are two women that man they they labored with me in the gospel they're passionate about about the preaching of and teaching and the uh, ministry of god's word and getting the gospel to the lost i mean they they labored with me they love the lord but there's a problem they're fighting each other there, there's division between the two of them And he says, I'm entreating them that they would have the same mind. And then he says, also, I'm entreating all the the rest of the people in the church. Those are the true yoke fellows. Help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. He reminds them that their names are in the book of life. But there was one problem that happened in the Philippian church. One problem that Paul had to address was division. And it's interesting how churches that are that are doctrinally sound that have the right doctrine and are passionate about the work of God often what happens is you get passion from one person and passion from another person then you have clashing you have these two very passionate people that have a you know they want to do something for the Lord if and in, in many cases and and yet the other person wants to do something for the Lord those two things don't don't quite fit And I've been in churches like this. I've been in churches where – I suppose this is a little bit more petty, but I'm going to use a petty example here to give an example. I've been in churches where people were so passionate about the church looking nice when they bought new carpet that they had to argue over what color was best for the church. And it became an actual argument between the church, and it was like, wait a minute, what's going on in this church? We all love the Lord. We are all doctrinally sound. We all want the church to look nice. So it's, you know, more presentable for, for visitors who come in, but we have to argue over the color. What's going on here? And this is the type of thing I think that happens a lot in churches. Um, Here, Paul is going to address it in chapter two. And and in chapter two, he's dealing with the principle of it. So that way he can finish the conversation and, and specifically give you the, the people he's talking about in chapter four the the problem of division remember that in psalm 133 we're told behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity it has always been the heart of god that his people would be united not united around false doctrines and you know okay we could just forget this because you know it's you know because we should have unity we're not talking about unity with with lost people in the world we're talking about having unity with false teachers and false things we're talking about in the church where we have the right doctrine and we're passionate about the things of God and the work of God let's not let things little things get in the way you know what happens what's really going on when little things get in the way it's not little things it's things that please us it's ourselves it's our pride that's what gets in the way of unity in a good church and so here Um, Paul is going to address it. Here's what he says. Having uh, now already given them his perspective, we saw that in chapter one, to live is Christ. It changed everything. His whole perspective was for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It allowed him to go through tribulations and persecutions with a a, uh, joyful mind. Now he turns and says uh, in verse 30, he says, you have the same conflict, which ye saw in me now here to be in me, meaning they're being persecuted for the cause of Christ. But in all that persecution, in the great stress and strain that was on the individuals of that church, even though they were passionate about the Lord, they knew that at any time they could be arrested, could be thrown in prison, things could happen. There was no doubt a lot of emotions going on here. And in their doctrinally correct, passionate church. They there was clashes, personality clashes. And so Paul says this in chapter one, uh chapter two, verse one. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, well, let's just stop there because we're gonna take our time. <laughs> if there be any consolation in Christ, what do you mean, Paul? <laughs> uh what Paul is using a word here um in the Greek that translated to English certainly is if, but it has the sense of Since this is true, if there be any uh, consolation in Christ, the the Greek word leaves no doubt that this is certainly true. And, of course, we read it and we understand that, of course, to be the case. If If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, Paul is saying, is there consolation in Christ? Yes. Since that's true, I'm going to ask you to do something. Now, he's saying... What we do when we're in tribulations, when we're in troubles, when we're in trials and difficulties, is we run to Christ for consolation for those things. We don't say, oh, so-and-so should be treating me better. We don't take out our frustrations on each other. We run to Christ. There's consolation in Christ. There is consolation in Christ because he died on the cross for our sins. He's taken all the penalty for all of our sins, which leaves us with no suffering at all, except that which brings him glory. So. We're not suffering for our sins when we go through trials and tribulations. We're suffering for his glory. That's a wonderful thing. Now there's consolation in my suffering. There's consolation in Christ and what Christ did. I'm not suffering in vain. I'm suffering for a glorious purpose. So is there consolation in Christ? Of course there is. Is there any comfort of love? He says, if any comfort of love. Does the fact that the God of all the universe who created me, who's fist uh, uh, and who has shaken my fist against him every time I sin I'm saying my life is lived is to be lived for me the life that you graciously allow me to live every single day I'm going to live it for myself that same God loves me oh my goodness that should definitely give me some comfort for sure there's not just some comfort of love there's all the comfort in the world Is there any consolation in Christ? If there's any of it, then I want you to do this thing he's going to ask us to do. If there's any comfort in the love of Christ, any at all, there's all comfort in the love of Christ. But if there's any, then you need to do this thing. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Now, in tribulation, we often look for other people to treat us well, you know. Now I can, I'm going to, again, use a very extreme example of this. This is the example of when I get a cold, my wife, my wife, when she gets a cold, she just keeps doing what she does. You know, nothing changes. She just has a cold while she's doing it. When I get a cold, everything has to stop. All right. I've got to, I've got to rest. I've got to get over the cold. I've got to curl up in my blanket and tomorrow I'll be ready to get back to work. <laughs> and so, um, uh, <laughs> What I want from my wife is for her to comfort me when I'm, when I'm feeling sick, all right? I want her to comfort me because I'm not feeling good. And sometimes she doesn't have a whole lot of comfort to give to me. <laughs> um, but uh, she doesn't feel a lot of sympathy for me, but that's all right. The point is that when we are in troubles and trials and difficulties, we may not say it, but we expect other people to treat. We, we feel that we've earned a better treatment from other people. You know, how dare you say that when I'm going through, you know? And he's saying, but our fellowship is not, our great fellowship isn't guaranteed in each other. Our great fellowship is guaranteed in the Spirit. We should have fellowship with each other, but we rely on the fellowship of the Spirit. We get angry because someone isn't giving me some amount of kindness that I deserve. We don't deserve any of it. We have the fellowship of the Spirit. As Christians, when we're saved, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have his fellowship. Romans 8 says that he intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There is fellowship of the Spirit. So he says, if there's any consolation for your trials in Christ, if there's any comfort from those trials in his love, if there's any fellowship, you're not walking alone through these things. You have the fellowship of the Spirit any bowels and mercies. If God has been merciful to you at all, even a little bit, then I want you to do this next thing. So there's really good reasons to do whatever Paul is about to ask us to do. The perfect reasons, all the reason we could possibly need. So notice the reasons for what he's about to ask. In verse verse 2, we're going to see what he's going to ask. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. Notice we don't have unity of the brethren. We don't have unity in our church because, because we deserve it. But the other person who's, you know, said something that offended me deserves me to forgive them. They may not for deserve me to forgive them. They, I might be right. They might be wrong. But, I, you know, sometimes there's an argument. No one's right. But sometimes one person is right. Another person is really wrong. Um. Doesn't count in uh, in marriages. It's always the wife. Okay, she's always right. But yeah. <laughs> there, there you go. But um, but sometimes you know. But here we're not having the same mind because the other person has done this or done that or deserves this or deserves that. We're we're asked to have the same mind because there's consolation in Christ. We're to have the same mind because there's comfort of His love. There's fellowship in the Spirit. Spirit. There's bowels and mercies from God fulfill ye my joy now paul is saying listen i'm i'm so filled with joy for you but i could be filled a little more <laughs> if you would just have the same mind fulfill ye my joy make it all the way make it all the way filled if you would just have the same mind having the same love being of one accord of one mind let nothing be done through str- here's how how to accomplish that let nothing be done through strife or vain glory it's not about you remember when i was uh when i was growing up this is one of the lessons my dad taught me over and over and over again so it's not about you josh it's not about you i remember him saying that so many times and then when i was preparing to go to school for for the ministry. I, I remember him, you know, he's he was a pastor at the time, and I remember him pulling me aside and talking to me, giving me pointers on preaching and all this, and, and he put me in uh, as a teacher in the junior church before I went off to school to get a little bit of experience, and I remember one of the things he said, listen, here's the thing about preaching. It's not about you. It's not about you. You're gonna have a lot of people looking at you, but it's not about you. Here's problem we have we just naturally make everything about ourselves in our world everything kind of resol- revolves around us what am i going to do today where am i going to go what do i want to accomplish it's it's really all about ourselves and we can get if we're not careful it's a natural thing we just start making everything about us but it's not let nothing be done through strife or vain glory looking for Your own glory. It's vain. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Meaning the argument that should be going on in a church is, hey, I've got this idea. I want to do this great ministry. Someone else comes along. I have. We're going to do the same ministry, but here's a better way to do it. And then the two of them argue over how we should do it the opposite way. You know, no, you're right. It should be your way. No, no, you're right. It should be your way. That's the argument we should have because everyone is more concerned with the other than with themselves. They understand that that the Holy Spirit has placed inside the church different perspectives on purpose. We're not supposed to all be thinking the same thing all the time. We're supposed to disagree, not on doctrine. We're supposed to disagree on different perspectives on how to look at different things and how to get things done in different ways so that collectively together, we can accomplish more than if it was just one of us. It's not supposed to be one person in the church. That's not a church. The church is a gathered people where we gather together, we share our gifts, we have different perspectives. And in order for a church to do that and to not be filled with strife and arguing one uh, one uh, amongst another, we must have lowliness of mind, esteeming other better than themselves. Now, that's a hard thing to do. It's an easy thing to say. It's just simple words lowliness of mind, let it each esteem other better than themselves. Okay, but to do that, it's a lot harder. Verse 4 Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, I really want to do this but you know what? I know so-and-so really wants it that way. And I really want them to, I really care about accomplishing that because that really concerns them. Now, we often have this, you know, this whole idea of interest groups. Well, the women in the church, they really want this done. And and the men in the church, they want this done. And the teens, that would be really good for the teens. Well, it should be that, that, the, that whatever you're interested in is the last thing on the list. And the things that, Interest others is the first thing on your list. Why? Because the others will be interested in the things that are on your list, right? So it'll be backwards for them, right? This is how the church is to operate. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Okay, now we've been given the principle. We're given the reason uh, for this request. It's because of Christ, the consolation that's in Christ, the comfort of his love, the fellowship of the Spirit any uh, bowels or love and mercy from God, the kindness and mercy that he's given us. Then the request, fulfill ye my joy and be like-minded. Here's how it's done. We, we're gonna have to get ourselves out of the way. And in order to do that, here's the example of it. Verse five, let this mind be in you, which also was, which was also in Christ Jesus. We need the mind of Christ. We need the mind of Christ. Verse 6. What was the mind of Christ? Now, it's interesting that verse 6 through verse 11 appears to be an ancient early church song. Now, this this is something that I did not come up with on my own. This is something many scholars have examined and said, this looks in greek like it's poetry that it was probably something that paul was quoting to them because he's quoting one of their songs they had put to song uh, a doctrinal statement about the lord jesus christ and paul calls that song to memory to remind them of the things that are true about jesus uh, it just sort of underscores the importance of music in a church because they were able to put to to music this these glorious this glorious doctrinal um treatise on Jesus Christ the creed uh on Christ and when Paul was trying to explain to them the the manner in which they should be acting he 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 grabbed the song and wrote the song back to them so that they would remember it it's as if um in you were hearing a sermon from someone and they just started saying Uh, As they were trying to explain that the only way to be saved is through the blood of Christ, he might just start quoting, "What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus." To remind them of that doctrinal truth that's contained within the song, and so Paul begins to give them this doctrinal truth in uh, from the song, and he says, "This remember the mind of Christ. He was in the form of God." Verse six: "Who being in the form of God," that word "form." is very specific we could get into a lot of different words that could have been used for form but the greek word that was used makes it very clear that he was god it's like saying i'm in the form of a man not in the form of a woman you know my wife's in the form of a woman <laughs> um that means that's who she is she is a woman i am a man jesus is god now it could say i could use a different word for the word form uh, for instance, uh, uh, another word in Greek that could also be translated "form" would say something like, "I'm in the form of a 30-year-old man, a 36-year-old man." You know, uh, I'm a middle-aged man. I guess I don't know 36 if middle if that's middle-aged or am I a young man? I don't know what I am anymore. But uh, you know, that one time I was in the form of a of a boy. I was in the form of a teenager. That that's a different word, form. In this case, it's talking about who he was, the essence of his being. He. Is God. Jesus in the form of God. Now, the next phrase, a little bit, a little bit complicated because the word used does is used for robbery, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But the word just means to grab a hold of something. So they would use it in Greek, they would use it to talk about robbery. Yo, he grabbed a hold of my wallet, you know. He he uh, he robbed me, right? But the point that Paul seems to be attempting to, to make here or at the, the song that he's quoting seems to be making is that it was not the, the, the equality with God that Jesus had because he is God, he's equal to God, he's the form of God, he is God, was not something for him to grasp or to hold on to. Meaning he didn't see that. The, the equality with God sitting in heaven as one of the three persons of the Trinity, of course, he's not going to cease to be a person of the Trinity. He's just going to leave everything in heaven and come to earth. He's thought it not something to be grasped. He didn't grab a hold of that. Instead, verse 7, he made, but made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant. Jesus comes to earth and his reputation, I mean, he goes, there's no more extremes than this. From the heights of heaven to the lowliness of earth. He comes to earth not as an angel. He didn't come in all of his brilliance and all of his glory. He showed up in the book of Daniel in all of his glory. Daniel chapter 10. He's clothed in white linen. His face is shining. Daniel just falls on his face, on, on his face and, and passes out. He shows up in the book of Revelation in all of his glory. Revelation chapter 1. I mean, he showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, all of his glory. What do they do? They just fell on their faces, but but here when Jesus came to the earth, he didn't come in all of his glory. He took on him to form the form of a servant who's made of no reputation. Christ came and he gave it all up. He came as a as a baby in a in a manger. There's no room for the baby. So they put him in a manger. And he was born in 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 Bethlehem, you know, Bethlehem. He goes and he's raised in Nazareth. No good thing can come out of Nazareth, they said. He was raised by a carpenter, and hit the carpenter. Everybody knew the carpenter wasn't his real father. He had no reputation. We not we be not the the son of adultery, they said to Jesus, trying to insinuate, of course. The obvious. He was made of no reputation. He took on himself the form of a servant. I mean, for 30 years, he's a carpenter. He took on himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. According to Isaiah 53, there was no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 8: And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Wait a minute. He's already in the fashion of a man. He's already humbled himself. No, no, no. He's going to humble himself even more. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. You know, the Bible says that Christ learned obedience. You know, that's something that, that Jesus had never done before. I mean, he knew about it. He knows all things, but he had never done it until he came to earth. He learned obedience. He took on himself the form of a servant being found in the fashion of the man, he humbled himself even more and became obedient all the way to death. And what just death? You remember, Jesus had never sinned. He didn't have to die. The wages of sin is death. He, he took on himself, not the form of Adam before the fall, because he experienced pain. He experienced suffering. He, he cried. He wept. He, he he was anxious. He was nervous. There was All of the things that we we'd have not a savior who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He took all of that on him, yet without sin. He took none of the sin nature, but he took all of the sin curse, all of the all of the pain and suffering and the death. But he didn't even just die a human death. It goes even further. Even the death of the cross. Well, that was the worst kind of death. As a matter of fact, for thousands of years, empires had had um, researched how to torture their their victims and kill them in the most brutal ways, and finally, the Roman Empire had perfected it with crucifixion. I mean, this was this was the way to cause the most pain and the most uh, misery to everyone around. Hearing this person uh, as they're walking down the street into a city, they would put crosses there with with thieves or with rebels against the Roman Empire. So that everyone would go by and they would see them bleeding and and, uh, slowly dying, gasping for breath and screaming and crying. And people would walk by and know, I better not cross the Roman Empire. That was the most lowly, cursed death that someone could die. Not only that, but for a Jew, it was worse than ever. Because in the Old Testament, we're told that it was a curse for anyone to hang on a tree. This was a special curse for the nation of Israel. and Jesus took all of that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. why for us now if jesus can do that for us our picture is christ we are to be christ-like that's what christian means the little christ-like people you know that's what christ-like means that's what Christian means. It means Christ-like. Our model, our example is Christ. Christ gave up all of the glory he rightfully deserved. For us, we don't rightfully deserve any glory. So why do we try to grab it for ourselves? Instead, we should do as he did. Let none of us do anything with strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, we should esteem other better than ourselves not looking every man at at his own things, because Jesus certainly didn't. He looked at the things of others. Verse 9. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him. God hasn't highly exalted us. Now, through the exaltation of Christ, we also get exaltation, don't we? I mean, we also get glorified bodies one day because Christ rose from the dead. That's... That's what takes place at the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus is proving his power over death and hell. And, and he's gained the victory. He's on to heaven. And uh, and the promise is that we get to be like him. We get to see him as he is. And we shall be like him, the Bible says. We also get glorified bodies. We receive glory in heaven. But we don't deserve any of it. We only get it on the merit of Jesus Christ. Um, so God has highly exalted Him, and has given Him a name which is above every name. So why are we so often concerned with our name, our things, and the things that concern us, when it's Christ who is highly exalted? It's Him who has the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. One way or another, every knee bows to Jesus in the end anyway one way or another our job as as the church is to call people to bow the knee to Christ to turn in repentance and say i'm not the lord you are to find him to be the lord and savior that he is before they are forced to do so at the judgment but every knee shall bow the ones that shake their fist against god on this earth will still bow their knee to him in the next one. All knees will bow. All things in heaven and all things in earth. Uh, You notice the the things, if you've got the the King James translation, you see of things is uh, italicized, right? Uh, Meaning of in heaven and in earth. And the implication in the Greek is just all everything. But, Specifically, it's everyone, it's people, it's human beings. Uh, everyone in heaven and in earth, everywhere, it doesn't matter where you are, and under the earth, in hell, it doesn't matter where you are, everyone bows to Christ in the end. So, why do we waste our time building our own kingdoms? Why do we waste our time seeking our own our own goals, our own ends? Everyone bows to Christ in the end. Verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be people from every single tribe and every single tongue, according to the book of Revelation, that will be around the throne of God. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus said, after he rose from the dead, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That's what the word Lord means. He's Lord of lords. He's king of kings. Lord means a position of authority. And there is no one who is Lord the way Christ is Lord. He has all the authority. He is over all the other lords. He is Lord. Verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he says you need to be working out your salvation by living your life with the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Now, I'd like to show you just a few things, but before we do that, I want to show you three examples of the mind of Christ besides Christ in this chapter. Look at what it says very quickly. Verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Understand you need God to even do that. You, you can't just go out and have the mind of Christ. You're going to need the Lord to work in you, to will and do of his good pleasure. So do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. They're all looking for their own advancement. Don't do that. Be the sons of God in the midst of that crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither yet, Labored in vain, yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I joy and rejoice with you all for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. He says, If I die here in prison, but I know in my death that you are still living strong, I'm offered on the sacrifice of your faith, then I'm going to be happy about that. You see how Paul now is exemplifying the mind of Christ? It's not about the things that concern me. It's about the things that concern you. And then he gives two more examples. Verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man, other than Timotheus, like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For look what he says next. I lost my place. Hang on. Verse 20, for I have no man who, who like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Verse 21, for all seek their own about the things which are Christ's. <laughs> He says, "Timothy, I know Timothy as the mind of Christ, so I'm going to send him to you, so that way he can just labor serving you, Get concerned about the things that that uh, that concern you." Verse 22. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the father he has served me with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I suppose it's necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Here's the final example, Epaphroditus. Now, who is Epaphroditus? He's going to explain it. He's my brother, so he's Paul's brother in Christ. He's a Christian and companion in labor, meaning he's been with Paul, uh, laboring alongside of him, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. So Epaphroditus was the person from Philippi that the Philippians had sent to Rome to deliver a gift to Paul. And then he stayed there in Rome, serving alongside of Paul. And now Paul is sending him back. And here's the reason he's sending him back. Verse 26, for he longed after you. So he was really, he really wanted to get back to you guys. Here's why. He was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed, he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So here's what Epaphroditus wants. I really got to get back to Philippi. Why do you need to get back to Philippi, Epaphroditus? Because I was sick while I was here, almost died. And I found out that people in Philippi found out that I was sick unto death. And now I'm not worried about the fact that I was sick unto death. I'm fine. I'm worried that they're worried about me being sick unto death. So what is this concern? I'm just concerned about what they're worried about. I'm seeking their things not the things of myself why because he has the mind of Christ this is the mind of Christ he says uh, just as Christ gave up all of his glory came to earth humbled himself and is highly exalted we don't seek to exalt ourselves we seek the mind of Christ in humility i'll give you one final passage uh, in closing there's so many uh, john chapter 13 of course is and chapter 15 where jesus gives us the commandment that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you love one another. This is this is something that even if we, it doesn't you know, ring a bell in our hearts, it sh- it should just for the simple fact that it c- clearly matters to God. Whether it matters to you and I or not doesn't really matter. This is something very important to God. He commands it over and over, but I, I didn't give you the passage I was turning to. I'm sorry. First Peter chapter 2. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, but uh, if you want to mark it, I, I saw a couple of people taking notes. You can mark John 13 34 and 35, and John 15 12 through 13. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, I'll read this to you. It says this speaking of Christ, of course, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, reviled not again. He suffered, uh, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. By um, whose stripes ye were healed. For we, ye were as sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Being Christ like is not just being righteous. It's not just having right doctrine. It's not just doing things like Christ would do them. It's having the mind of Christ, which without any real understanding that we could ever I don't think we could even possibly gain this kind of side of heaven. And maybe not even in all of eternity could we ever fully understand why Christ, who has no Benefit, it seems to us, in giving of himself to come to earth to die for lowly, dirty, rotten sinners. And yet he did. And he says, now, whether you like it or not, whether it feels good to you or not, I want you to do that for my people as well. I want you to love my sheep the way I do. I want you to be... Unified, to have the same mind, to have the mind, not of the mind of the pastor, the mind of the deacon, the mind of Christ. That's our job. That's our goal. May we have that as we close in prayer. Father, as we consider our own mind, our own life, we recognize that very often we do not have the mind of Christ. Certainly not in this kind of humility, this kind of self-sacrifice this kind of concern for others and yet it is clearly very important to you that we do and so we ask you it is god that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure so we ask you to help us here lord help us against our fleshly nature by your holy spirit To live a humble life. Not to be quick to speak our own thoughts and our own opinions, but rather to be quick to hear, slow to speak. And more concerned with the things of others than the things of ourselves, especially in this church. And as we attempt to do this, may you be glorified and lifted up. We pray these things in Jesus' name.